Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. On behalf of myself and Kevin David Thomas, welcome to Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest is a trailblazer in the American theater. While many trailblazers are responsible for creating one new path, today's guest has created multiple and the ramifications of what he created will be felt for generations to come. From creating and fostering a stronger American regional theater scene to demanding diversity be a driving force both on and off the stage, our guest has led the fight at a time when very few leaders even recognized there was a fight to be had. And now he has put his journey into literary form with the incredible new book, My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater, which traces his time as the artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse, director of such Broadway shows as Play On and Blues in the Night, as well as monumental works at the Pasadena Playhouse, including Fences with Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett, Kiss Me Kate, 12 Angry Men, and so many others. To tell us what it was like doing all of these amazing things, here is the one and only Shelley. Sheldon Epps. Sheldon, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. And thank you for that great introduction. I feel like I have so much to live up to now. No. <laughs> thank you so much for your incredible body of work. Okay, so uh, 20 years ago, you could have written an autobiography and, and had so much material in there. So why now? Why now did you want to put your life story on paper? Uh, well, there were a couple of things that happened uh, when I stepped down from my position at Pasadena Playhouse in um, 2017. A lot of people started to say, well, you know, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I said, oh, please, who should write a book? Um, but people kept saying that. And at a certain point, if enough people say that, you start to, you start to think, oh, well, maybe I should write a book, you know. And I did think about it and uh, realized that I had a very specific journey in the American theater and at Pasadena Playhouse and a, a story to tell. And then 
I went on and did other things and directed here and there and went back to directing television and all of that. Uh, and then this little thing called the COVID pandemic ah, hit. Yes, yes. And uh, put us all at home for all that time and said, don't leave the house. So uh, I actually had the time to do it. And I said to myself, self, <laughs> you better use this time now if you're ever going to get this book done. And along with that, as you well know, uh, shortly after, after the pandemic started, the Black Lives Matter movement started. And in, in particular, there were a lot of direct conversations and um, blogs and all of that about racism in the American theater. And I realized that that was certainly something that I had dealt with and that I had a story to tell that corresponded to some of the things that I was hearing. And even more than that, uh, it occurred to me that many of the things that I was hearing that were being spoken about more openly uh, during that time were things that I had been talking about for 10, 20, 30 years. So um, all of that motivated me to really sit down and start the book. Why do you think 30 years ago, nobody was taking it as seriously as we are now? 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I would even say five years ago, if, if, if you would agree or disagree with that. But why now? Why now is the conversation starting to move? Right. I do agree with that. Uh, I, I think the conversations were, uh, I'll call them muted. I'll say that there were a uh, few of us having the conversation. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that for many, many years, the American theater as a field sort of patted itself on the back and said, oh, no, we don't, there's no racism in, in the American theater. You know, that's not a problem for us. It's a problem for many other occupations and other fields. But no, we're, we're, we're Trey liberal. We don't have that problem. Um, and I think the Black Lives Matter movement uh, as a whole sort of opened the door to a greater kind of honesty and a greater kind of directness and a, a greater truthfulness. And also by that time, there were many more people of color running uh, institutions. So there was safety in numbers, I think, you know. Uh, when I was coming along and when Kenny Leon was an artistic director and George Wolf, you know, there were only three of us or there was only one yeah. of us. You know, suddenly there was safety in numbers and many more voices to be raised so that nobody could say that it was a personal thing. You know, we were speaking on behalf of the field and not for ourselves, you know, because we all have had great careers and, you know, we don't have anything to be angry about. But we were speaking on behalf of those who have been deprived in ways that we were at one time and that we had to overcome those challenges. And when, when you and, and Kenny and George were all running these theater companies independently of each other, was there a lot of commiserating between the three of you? Or did you find yourselves in a fraternity going, this is happening at my theater, is it happening at yours? What are you doing to improve it, et cetera, et cetera? You know, I, I, I think because there were few of us and because those conversations had not been ignited, uh, though we're all familiar with each other and talk to each other, we didn't talk a lot about that, you know? Our, I think our point of view was, okay, this exists, we know this exists, now let's get to work. <laughs> let's do the work and let's prove 
that it shouldn't exist. So I think that's where we put our efforts was trying to um, do great work at our theaters, try to produce great work, direct great work, and take away the reasons that anybody had to be prejudiced against leaders of color. During um, the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, which it, which it was happening as the pandemic was also occurring, how did you artistically satisfy yourself and how did you artistically communicate what you were feeling when your primary mode of communication was taken away because of the pandemic? Well, I started writing the book, <laughs> number one, because I, I had the time and the space to do that. So uh, that was difficult, but, but satisfying and creative in its own way. Uh, I'm on the board of a, of a foundation called the Ten Chimneys Foundation. And the Ten Chimneys Foundation got together with Black Theater United and held um, a long convening. I think it was a week long with really about 85 of the biggest theaters in America and with the members of Black Theater United. And that was really a soul searching time, a time of really deep communication, really honest communication. Uh, a lot of people got angry. A lot of people got upset. There were a lot of a lot of tears. There was also a lot of laughter, but some rage, some anger, all of that. So uh, that was valuable for all of us as a way to use that time, as I say, to confront something really directly and really honestly and really openly. And people listened. I have to say that people listened, and I do feel that since then there, there are things that have and will change even more in the next coming years. What are some of the things that excite you that you are seeing being changed and will even go further in the next couple of years? Yeah, well, as I said, uh, you know, when George, George was an artistic director and I was and, and Kenny was, that was it. <laughs> Literally, there were three of us and then when George went on to, to work commercially and Kenny did, there was, there was one of us, there was me for a long time and that was it. Uh, we have artistic directors, men and women of color at many, many more theaters now, Nataki Garrett and Hannah Sharif, um, um, uh, Stephanie Ibarra, uh, Robert Barry Fleming, you know, all successfully and happily running theaters. Um, I can't say happily every day right now <laughs> because it's so challenging for theaters, but successfully, you know, uh, there's there's a much larger group. There's a larger group of people in, in administrative positions as well, you know, um, executive directors, managing directors. So that's been a huge change. Uh, theaters are certainly much more conscious uh, of audience outreach and developing new audience and really understanding that every community in a city, every community in America should have ownership of these theaters. You know, there was a long time when there was no encouragement for people of color to come to a lot of these theaters. And they really have come to understand that there's, there's something you have to get over <laughs> if you want somebody to come into your house, but the door has been shut for a long time you're gonna to have to do, do some extra work to make people feel comfortable and to feel that they have ownership of the space as they should. 
And what are some things that theaters and theater practitioners can be doing to be creating and fostering a space like that? Uh, well, first and foremost, it, it begins with the programming. It depends on the work that you're doing on the stage. You know, uh, people want to see work that reflects their own lives and that has something to do with their own lives. Um, and, and then if they get in the habit of going to the theater, they'll go to see anything and everything, which is great. Um, marketing is really important. Um, I believe that the theater actually for a long time, we're getting much better for a long time. We were way behind about using social media yes. and using yeah. anything other than a printed review in a newspaper to let people know that a show was running. You know, you, you got to market, you got to go to the community, you got to go to churches, you got to go to sorority meetings, fraternity meetings, you got to go to organizations like the Jack and Jill and say, really, we want you here. I am here to tell you that we want you here. And, and frankly, uh, hiring more people of color on the staff is a really big step, you know. Not just on stage, but off stage as well. Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, we've we've been seeing faces of color on stage and on screen for for a good long time, but we haven't seen faces of color in in the executive offices, you know, as the development directors, as uh, managing directors. So uh, when when those communities see that the theaters are actually employing people in all of those positions, that makes a difference. You know, I used to have artistic directors <laughs> come out to Pasadena Playhouse and they'd look at our audience and they'd say, oh my God, you have such a wonderfully diverse audience. How do you do this? How, how can I make this happen? And sometimes I would say, well, you're gonna have to give up your job and hire somebody who looks like me. <laughs> And to a certain degree, I don't think that's panoramically true, but there is truth to that. Hiring people on the staff of the theater makes a big, big difference. What made you decide that Pasadena was the community that you wanted to embrace and foster artistry in? You know, this is an absolutely true story, Rob, and I think people think that I make it up. Uh, number one, I'm from Los Angeles, so this is my hometown. Yes. Uh, when I was eight years old, I got on a bus from Compton and took the long, long road from Compton to Pasadena. And I saw a play called A Member of the Wedding with, talk about Broadway legends, with Miss Ethel Waters, one of the last times that she performed on stage. So Pasadena Playhouse was the theater where I discovered the magic of theater. You know, be a better story if I said that was the day that I committed to a life in the theater. That's no, not I like. <laughs> but it is the day that I fell in love with going to the theater. So the theater has always had a place in my heart for that reason. Uh, and then I came back here and started directing initially as a freelance director at the Playhouse. It's a beautiful facility. It's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous theater. And the theater is right here in the center of Los Angeles, you know? And I was aware by that time that there were lots of people who had moved out here to do film and television, but who loved working in the theater. You know, people who lived in New York and studied in New York and all of that, but came out here to do film and television. So 
I just knew that if we put some effort into focusing on the artistry of the theater in this grand and glorious playhouse, there was no reason that it couldn't at least strive to be a great theater. As, as I've said, that was always my aim to make it a great theater. And it's for others to say whether, whether it became a great theater or not, but it did have moments of greatness that I know. And it did become the... a great theater. It did. <laughs> well, I, 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 will, I will validate as a, <laughs> as a loyal subscriber. It is, I do validate. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I just knew that, you know, the resources were here to, to make it a great theater. Um, and I love Los Angeles, you know, as, as I said, I'm from here. So it's, it's my hometown and I've always loved it here. And I, I wanted there to be another great theater in Los Angeles. I want to go back a little bit, if I can. What made you get on that bus in the first place to go see Member of the Wedding? My mother and father. My father was a Presbyterian minister, and he had uh, a very big congregation out here. And he firmly believed, and my mother believed, that exposure to the arts was a major part of the upbringing of anybody, but specifically wow. for young, young black kids, because it was a black, black church, black congregation. He absolutely believed in that. He, he was a music lover. My mother was a theater lover. And so every, every Saturday or almost every Saturday, we would get on a bus to somewhere yes. and we would go to see symphony concerts. We would go to see dance concerts. We would go to museums to see art shows. So they, thank God, they, they were just of a belief that arts exposure was a big part of young people's education. And how important is that to have had that kind of exposure that early? So when you looked at them and said, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm going to go be an actor, <laughs> they were supportive with this decision. They oh, got okay. <laughs> around to being supportive. I mean, that was pretty, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer for most of my youthful years, um, but did announce in senior year of high school that you know, this thing I'd been doing as a hobby, I, I thought I really wanted to do. And um, they, they came around to saying yes, but they also said, you do have to go to college and get a degree. You can't go just across the river and go to HB Studios or American Academy or one of those places. You have to go to college and get a degree. And that's what led me to uh, applying to Carnegie Mellon, where I got a bachelor's degree in fine arts. Do you come from a big family? Do you have a lot of brothers and sisters? Um, one brother, one sister. Are they also in the arts or, or have they pursued? No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> However, as I said, my, my father was a preacher and, you know, loved music and loved language and used drama in his Sunday services. So I, I think I said, I don't come from the theater background, but I am the son of a preacher and an actor. <laughs> it feels pretty theatrical. <laughs> it feels pretty. Theatrical. So very when did the switch happen from being on stage to being behind the scenes and creating the world for the audience? Uh, about six or seven years after I graduated from Carnegie, uh, and worked as an actor and, and did okay. You know, I was on soap operas and did some commercials and a lot of regional theater and off, off Broadway. I was doing yes. fine as an actor. I was making a living, you know, 
but a little unsatisfied, a little, I felt hungry for more. Artistically. So I started, yes, artistically. And, and, and frankly, to be a little bit more in control of my destiny, which, which actors are not for the most part. Um, so I started a theater with um, four people that I'd been to Carnegie with. And one of the four was a, a really great director named Norman René, who did all yes. of Craig Lucas's early work and um, did Marry Me a Little with Craig very early on. Uh, but Norman was a great director and we, in this small little theater company on 18th Street in Chelsea, we, we frequently had trouble finding uh, directors that we loved. So Norman came to me one day and, and quite generously said to me, you know, when I direct you and we disagree about something, I usually think that you are right, though I might not admit it at the time but I usually come back to what you've said two or three yes. days later and pretend it was my idea. <laughs> so he said, uh, I, I think that means that you really think like a director. So why, why don't you try directing since we're always having trouble finding directors and we know each other. So if we disagree, we, we can argue more comfortably about mm. things. And I said, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And I very modestly started with a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Very good. <laughs> good. And um, took to directing right away and actually started working as a director, started working at Manhattan Theater Club and Playwrights Horizons. And um, shortly after I started directing, I did this little cabaret show called Blues in the Night. Yes. That was intended just for really five or six performances as a late night cabaret uh, that eventually, as you know, wound up on Broadway and then in London and yeah. uh, was produced all over the world. And that became kind of a calling card for me as a director. Um, that and the chance to work at the Guthrie Theater in, mm. in Minneapolis uh, were really the things that launched my directing career. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And you got to work under or with, I should say, Garland Wright. Is that correct? Yes. What yes. is something that you learned from Mr. Wright that you still take with you today when you go into a rehearsal? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, to trust the directors that you hire. Um, if, if, if you're going to love a show, a project so much that you can't see it directed any way, but the way you would direct it, direct it yourself, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. Uh, otherwise, let a good director do what a good director does and just help that person to do what they do. Um, this was a great lesson. Um, interestingly, uh, my production at the Guthrie was a production of Death of the Salesman with oh. a black woman family. Ah, so <laughs> Garland invited me to do that 
and I and I did direct that, you know, a good 30 years before the, the current production. Who, who was your Willie Loman? Uh, a, a man named Mel Winkler, uh, who'd been in a couple of the August Wilson plays. Yes, yeah. Mel Winkler okay. played Willie Loman. Um, and Isabel, Izzy, I can't think of her last name, was a beautiful Linda Loman, wonderful. Um, but anyway, Garland came to the first rehearsal, first run through of the show and uh, didn't have a notepad. And I said, oh, Garland, you don't have anything to take notes. Do you, you, want, you want a pad? He said, no, if I have anything really important to say, I will remember it. Mm. And I thought that was a great, great lesson. And I, yeah. I have followed that lesson since then as an artistic director that, you know, you don't give, you don't have to give somebody endless reams of notes about things they're already seeing, you know, pace up this scene or that's not clear or that, that the blocking that scene is a little sloppy. You don't have to do that. But, but what you do, should do as an artistic director is to be very, very clear about four or five things that maybe the director has not seen or hasn't thought about. And it's true, you know, if you have something important to say, you will remember it. Um, walk me through the first day of a rehearsal of a, a show that is being directed by you. Is it always the same? Is it rooted in some tradition? Um, Does it change? Question. Um, I think they're always similar. I, I do always um, start, start with or get to a reading of the script very quickly. Um, I'll tell you something that has changed over the last few years in my process is with musicals now, I very rarely do a, a read through on the first day. I oh, dive into teaching music with the musical director so that we can have a read through that makes sense because you can put the music into it. Ah, yes, yes. You can read it with, with, with the actors having some sense not that you're expecting full performances, but they can they can deliver the songs in some way. And I find that much more valuable. Um, I spend a lot of time on the first day and for several days, just, just talking with the cast, finding out who they are, finding out um, you know where they're from, where they studied, all those kinds of things. Number one, because I think it builds a kind of camaraderie and begins to build the community of the cast. It creates a kind of safety net around everybody. You know, it's hard to go out on a limb and do something outrageous or crazy if you think other people are going to laugh at you because you've never really met them. True. You know, very I think true. It's important for the actors to have a time just to meet each other and and come to know each other, and for me to come to know them, and um, then just a lot of talking about the script and what people have discovered, meaning other than me, in their first reading of it with everyone else, because it is different. You never, you can sit and read a play for 200 times. It's gonna be different than that first rehearsal where you uh -huh. hear the actors that you have cast in the play and find out what that specific chemistry is. So a lot like of like that. Do you like the act of table work? I do. I do. Um, 
I am not one, uh, even on a very quick schedule, which you sometimes have, I am not one to get up and start blocking the play right away. I always do table work. And here's why. I, I think the blocking goes a lot more quickly and makes a lot more sense if people actually know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, that, would, you know? that seems to be about right. So if you spend a few days, you know, just going through scenes and talking about them and really establishing what the scenes are about and what people want and what people need in a scene, uh, then when you get up to block it, the, block, the blocking is already informed by what they know rather than people just sort of walking around aimlessly or me telling people where to go and all of that. I, I really find that it's much more organic if you follow that system. And then when you're doing this table work, are all the actors, even if they're not in the scene, are they also sitting at this table while, while you're working so everyone gets a sense of the story or is it more private and more intimate depending on the necessity of the scene? Yeah, it, it, it depends on the necessity of the scene and the necessity of the play. When I did 12 Angry Men, even though there are scenes in there that go on for a while between one, two or three characters, I really wanted everybody in the room all of the time because that play is about listening to each other, mm -hmm. you know? So everybody had to be in the room to listen to all of the conversations, even if they didn't talk for 10 pages. Uh, in other plays, you know, where, where, where there might be very intimate scenes or um, small scenes, I, I certainly will break it down and, you know, do a three-person rehearsal, a two-person rehearsal, um, and not have everybody, have everybody there all the time. But I will frequently end the day, a day like that, where I've broken it down to smaller groups, I'll end the day by bringing everybody together and reading mm longer sections of the play or the full play again. What happens when in your mind, in the 200 readings you've had, you go, oh, this is a seduction scene. And the actor says to you, no, it's not. It's a scene about dismissal. It's a scene about rejection. What <laughs> happens What happens then for you? Oh, good question. Um, somebody said, I can't remember who it was. You know, I should say it was somebody like Mike Nichols or <laughs> somebody like that. That the art of direction is leading everyone back to doing what you want and making <laughs> them think that it's their idea. Yes. That yes. <laughs> uh, that is the way that you give actors ownership of things by sort of instilling the idea the concept that everything is coming from them. And I do actually kind of agree with that, that that is mm -hmm. a lot of what you often have to do as a director. Um, I, I would not start a rehearsal by saying, this is what this scene is. This, this is a seduction scene. This is an argument. I would always start by letting the actors show me yes. what they think yeah. it is. Now, I might sometimes say, Rob, I saw you have an instinct to play it this way. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I want to encourage that instinct. <laughs> I might sneakily say that whether I'd seen that instinct from you <laughs> or not. 
<laughs> we know that trick. It's <laughs> in there, you know, that, that power of subliminal suggestion. Yes, that's a vi- you had a very good idea. You should you should go with that idea. <laughs> Actor goes home. Sheldon loved my idea today. Right. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is a lot of it is psychology and power yes. of suggestion, as we know. And going back to this fantastic book, which which you wrote, once a book is finished, I'm sure there might be some things where you go, "Oh, darn it! I should have said this," or. I wish for a length I could have included that. What is something yeah. you would love if you have a second attempt at this book, second edition? What would you love oh. to add? Or would uh, you love to have expanded on? Uh-huh. Well, I, I I probably do have another book in me that, that's about yeah. my television career. You know, oh my God, yes. Yes. I really, I really kept this book to the theater and almost didn't mention television at all. Um there's some other people that I've worked with, uh, either either as a producer or as a director, uh, that I would spend more time talking about. Uh, Eartha Kitt was a fascinating human being and performer. Would you tell us a little bit about what it was like being in a room with her? I will. <laughs> and this is what what I would have put in the book. You know, first of all, I. I don't know whether it's true or not, but supposedly there were some times when Eartha did not behave so well. Um, you hear that a lot from people who were in Timbuktu. Yes. So, you know, when I told people that I was going to be working with her, it was like, oh, oh my God. Oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, and I learned a lesson, which is never believe what people tell you about working with somebody because I never had that kind of problem with her. However, Eartha was a person who was justifiably paranoid mm. because mm. after she had that scene at the White House, yes. she had her phone tapped. You know, she had people out to get her. She lost work. You know, people spoke behind her, her back for years. So she was justifiably paranoid. So you would say, good morning, Eartha. And she'd say, what does that mean, Mr. Eartha? <laughs> <laughs> what can you say to me? And I'd say, well, I'm just trying to say good morning. Good morning. Actually. Yeah. But this is a great story about Eartha. She sang in Blues in the Night, the song Lush Life, mm. which is quite a journey and deals with the sadness of a broken heart, deals with wanting to get away from it all. You know, if I could get to Paris, everything would be fine. Um, But I'm in a dark, lonely place and I may never get out of it. And Bertha never wanted to sing that song in rehearsal. And she kind of learned it, you know, learned the notes and all of that, but she never really wanted to sing it. So finally I said at a run through, okay, Eartha, <laughs> today's the day. <laughs> you have to really sing Lush Life. All right, Mr. Epps, whatever you say. Okay, I'll do it for you today. Well, Robert, she walked off of the taped area of the set, walked over to a window in the rehearsal room, 
and looked out the window for the entire song and completely invested in the song in a way that reduced all of us to tears. Mm. And then she walked back on the set and said, are you happy now you've seen the song? And I said, oh my God, Eartha, I'm very happy. And she never quite sang it that way again. Mm. She mm. never quite was willing to take that deep, deep personal journey that she took with it again. It was fine. You know, it was Eartha Kitt. Sure. Yes. <laughs> she made her way through it. But, you know, that, that real personal connection that she had that day, she, she, couldn't maybe go there every day, every performance. Ooh. Yes, please, Sheldon, write the second book. Uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna purchase my copy now. Um, okay. One of the, th one of the things we always ask our guests is, you know, what do you know now that you wished you had known when you were first starting out in this career path, whether as an actor, director, artistic director? Yeah, uh, I know that listening is more important than talking. I know that it's perf perfectly okay to say in a rehearsal process, if you're asked a question, you know, I don't know the answer to that right now. Uh, and then to listen, number one, to what others in the room may have to say, but also go home and listen to your inner voice or the voice of the universe to uh, receive an answer rather than just talking <laughs> and answering a question to prove that you have an answer when in fact you, you may not, you know, mm -hmm. that it's perfectly okay to say, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll think about that and I'll hope to know tomorrow. And it's, it's, it's really okay to not feel like you have to be the smartest one in the room, but to listen and receive, you know, comments and information, as I said, from, from your inner voice, from the universe, but, but from everybody else in the room, you know, even the sta stage managers can have a great idea sometimes about something or help to solve a problem or somebody will say some small thing that leads to a big thing. But you're, if you're talking and haven't been listening, you know, you won't, you won't, you won't have a chance to hear that small thing. So I, I would say that, you know, and more, more right. bluntly, I would say, don't pretend that you have answers when you don't have one. <laughs> I, th I think listening more is advice that we can all be taking. Sheldon, thank you so, so much for spending time with us today. Friends, uh, the book is fantastic. It's called My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater. If you click on our info description below, you can, uh, it takes you to a link where you can purchase the book. I encourage you to read it. I also encourage you, make it uh, mandatory reading for your students. It is a book that should be read by everybody. Sheldon, once again, thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Thank and you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You, you too. And listeners, thanks so much. Happy holidays, and we'll see you all soon. Bye-bye. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists. 
what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.